Hey there, I'm Prag Marate, president of 49ers Enterprises and EVP of Football Operations, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with sports executive Parag Marathe. Stay tuned. You know, it can certainly be a gift to understand yourself well enough to know what governs your short-term attention and what drives long-term success. And speaking of success, thank you so much for listening to this and sharing it with your friends and family, for posting a kind review or rating, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydarnikar. Now in professional sports, self-awareness to manage the task in front of you while having an eye on strategy to realize the goals of the future seems to take a blend of instinct data synthesis, effective risk management, sometimes obsessive discipline, a lot of dedication and empathy, and a little bit of luck. It's at least the introductory setup in getting to know Parag Marathe. Parag has been with the National Football League San Francisco 49ers for the past 22 years and serves as both the president of 49ers Enterprises and executive vice president of football operations. Now his own professional arc connects the dots of a child loving sports and growing up in the Bay Area to working as a consultant on a salary cap analysis project for then 49ers head coach Bill Walsh, to serving in a variety of executive roles critical to the 49ers success, including being a steward of using data analytics to overseeing the development and opening of Levi Stadium in 2014. Parag is the team's chief contract negotiator and salary cap architect, and in the scrambling world of constant pro football player personnel moves, supporting the general manager and the head coach to orchestrate yearly success at the highest level requires an affable toughness and an empathetic sharpness. He's among only a handful of South Asians in the NFL, and his multi-dimensional portfolio speaks to his many interests and passions. He oversees the 49ers stake in Leeds United as a part of the Premier League. He's also been a leader of USA Cricket. He lectures at Stanford's Business School on negotiation dynamics and he's been an ardent community champion in fighting mental illness and eating disorders, serving on the boards of several nonprofits. Parag and I had a chance to share a conversation about his experiences, and in leading up to the recent NFL draft, I asked him whether or not spring in the NFL, and this time of year bringing in new players and hitting the reset button, was at all kind, and maybe even restorative. So I would actually, uh, I take maybe a, not maybe, but kind of a 180 from that. Okay. Uh, in that I don't think it's kind. I think it's actually a little cruel. And let me describe what I mean is that, you know, you do everything you can um, to get to the point of trying to win a Super Bowl. And you only have 17 regular season games and the playoff games and all of that. And all of your year's work is poured into that. And Yet, you know, with so few games, there's so much variance and so much noise that could can disrupt your plans, as what happened to us in the NFC Championship game. Yeah. And the cruel thing about it is, uh, you know, there's only one of 32 that win. And on a dime, you shift from doing everything you can to win the Super Bowl to all of a sudden, hmm. you're back at ground zero, starting all over again, focusing all of your year's attention 
on trying to get back to the very same point that you were 364 days prior yeah. or 364 days later to hope that they, whatever fluke, whether it worked in your favor or worked against you, this time goes for you. Yeah. Uh, and so it's actually kind of the insanity of it is what it hits me every time uh, during this off season where I'm just thinking to myself, geez, here I go again in the hamster wheel of uh, just doing everything I can just to get back to the same point, the yeah. very same point and hoping that it goes differently. You know, at the same time, it's off season for 49ers, but it is middle of season, end of season for Leeds. Yeah. And so unfortunately, I am still deeply stressed about, uh, you know, hoping that we survive the Premier League this season and live to fight another day. So, so in that same vein where... Yes, there's a, a it, the, the cruelty, as you call it, and, you know, thinking about sort of the mindset, both before and after kind of a signature moment like the NFC Championship game. When do you get the sort of restorative time? When when can you sort of refresh and feel like there is some new energy, um, you know, in, in the cycle of, of that hamster wheel? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely at times when you're adding players and whether it's in free agency or the draft uh, for feeling refreshed about the team. Yeah. Uh, or teams yeah. uh, that that obviously happens in frenzy or in in the UK during our transfer windows sure. when you're adding players. Sure. But you know, personally, I guess it only comes in the summer, maybe like the June July time period where it is. But you know, this is not for the faint of heart. You know, yeah. like if you're going to be in sports and be on the sports the the team side of the sport, like uh, you better love it. You better be passionate about it because otherwise, it's going to eat you up and spit you out. I'm curious. Are are you in your head? always kind of playing financial and data Tetris at all times? Is that just sort of the nature of the beast? Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. It's just more, you know, it's just kind of the way I'm wired, I guess. I, yeah. I mean, forget about my day job or day jobs. It's just more just the way I'm wired. I'm always thinking about, you know, the stats or analytics of things. I don't know if it's OCD. My, my wife makes fun of me because like I'm the kind of guy who checks every one of my accounts and our credit cards every single morning. Yeah. Um, and it's just become a habit. I want to search for discrepancies. I want right. to search for, you know, or, or see how we're doing. Like I literally, it is a habit of mine. I spend the first 15 minutes of every morning checking every one of our accounts. It's just how I'm wired. When, when you're wired that way, and certainly you become the kind of safety net at all times and, you know, you're the Swiss cheese model in that, in that whole sort of framework. Do you ever find that it prevents you from purely enjoying the game or purely enjoying the product sometimes? Not really. Or, do, or, or in that way, is it additive to that enjoyment? No, it's not additive either. Uh, it's just more, you know, I still, I love the competition. Yeah. I love the sport. I love uh, wanting to win. And so I still, I still get butterflies in my stomach the night before Premier League games or NFL games. Yeah. I still have all of my superstitions that I do before each Leeds or 49ers game. And I still love the sport part of it. What's one of those superstitions that uh, you can share with us? Well, the quirky thing about superstitions are that if you share it, then it maybe is not going to be effective. Not going to be effective? All right. So you don't really want to share it. Let's just say I've got a dozen or so for each. Oh, wow. All right. Well, well hopefully, hopefully your process uh, continues to keep you keep you grounded um, with that, yeah. you, you know, and thinking about all the different machinations and iterations and processes that you go through, whether they're quirky superstitions or, or even financial analysis, data analysis, as you go through them, as we point to the draft, particularly, or even many of these processes, are, are we at a point where 
we can basically use and transpose that same process to sort of an AI bot or wizard to accompany every coach, every executive, every administrator to make decision support or even make those decisions for us, for those of us who are not necessarily wired the way you are. Yeah, no, I don't think so, to be honest with you. I know that's a, it's a, I don't want to say it's a convenient narrative about, you know, AI and data analytics taking over sports, but, but uh, it's somewhat become an in vogue one. Sure. Uh, and it's not, it's not really accurate. I mean, ultimately it is about what makes a, a, a player tick, you know, what is uh, his, des his desire to succeed, his maniacal focus on success or die trying uh, yeah. his heart, his teamwork, all of those things, that's innate and inside. And yeah, there's people that are doing lots of things to try to measure that a little bit better. But uh, in all sports, not just speaking specifically about football, uh, but in all sports, you're still just trying to find if, if it was that easy, everyone would already have the answer. But sure. And, and sure. if it was that easy, you wouldn't see players being drafted. So in the seventh round, be great successes or players yeah. being drafted in the first round being great failures. And so it is not it is people are trying to make it more of a science and they've done a better job, but it is still, there's so much art to it. Yeah. I, I think we struggle with that in medicine quite a bit, right? Where like, Hey, we could just go ahead and, and the invoke thing would be to have the decision support all the time. But in the end, there is an art to it. In the end, there is a yeah, kind of, no uh, you know, a creativity to it in, in garnering so much success as you've had over so much time. Now I'm curious for you, what, what do you have to unlearn? to be a successful NFL executive or a sports executive for that matter? What, what have been some of the things that you've had to sort of unwire about yourself perhaps? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess one thing that comes to mind is uh, that pro sports has so much profile versus working in a multi-billion dollar widgets company yeah. um, that everything you do is on the front page or in this case, either praised or criticized on social media, radio, podcasts, whatever it might be. And so the thing that I've had to unlearn is to tune out the noise yeah, and to just focus on what you think is best and what you're doing is best. I mean, you know, just take even in the Premier League right now, there's so much, uh, calling people fans of a club is even a misnomer. I mean, it is yeah. like they are everybody, you know, a club is everybody's little brother or little sister. You uh, and they're so passionate about it. Um, and so... And they're stakeholders, just like anyone else. Yeah. yeah. And I, so I think the, the, the thing that I've had to unlearn or maybe, you know, unlearn and teach myself again is that you're never as good as people say you are and you're never as bad as people think you are. You're always somewhere in between. Sure. Um, and so learning to tune out the noise um, and, you know, I try to... Yeah, I follow social media so that I can keep up to speed on news around the yeah. Premier League or around the NFL, but anytime it has to do with us or me, I avoid it, actually. Does it make you sort of have to, again, when you have those really great high moments, temper those, and then when you're in that yeah. sort of downside, got to buoy it up? 100%, because like you're just, you know, it's easy. It's easy to be seduced by the praise and think that you're awesome. Yeah. And it's easy, also, it's just as easy to be devastated by the criticism and think that you stink. And neither of those are true. You know, well, first off, this podcast does is not shame-based, uh, nor is it super praiseworthy. So uh, rest assured, <laughs> we'll, we're good there. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with NFL executive Parag Marathe. 
Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, I'm Lily Singh, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Hey, this is Rajiv Ram. I'm the 2022 U.S. Open doubles champion, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with the Executive Vice President of Football Operations for the San Francisco 49ers, Barag Marate. You know, as someone who is then driven by being that tempered executive, um, having that kind of even-keeled persona, but at the same time, a data analysis-driven executive, like the Billy Beans of the world or the Daryl Morris of the world, is it, especially when you're negotiating with someone, is it challenging to be agnostic then to the art, to the sentiment, to the nostalgia, uh, or even the interpersonal relationships as you as you kind of generate them? I'm not. Uh, can you describe a little more? I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what you mean. I mean, you know, when I when I walk into the doctor's office and I have an interpersonal relationship with someone or some nostalgia with them, they're a family yeah. friend or something, yeah. I still have to be agnostic to that yeah. so that I could yeah. actually use data to, in fact, yeah. make my story and, and, and enact my skill. And when you're negotiating with somebody, do you have to sort of be agnostic to kind of what their history yeah. has been and the nostalgia yeah. around them and what the fans say and, and the noise, as you said? Yeah, I'll give a I'll give an example right now that comes to mind, and that is that uh, we we recently had to let go of our our manager at Leeds, Jesse Marsh, and he was someone who you know we interviewed a year ago, and I felt very optimistic about and felt like he would be a tremendous um, asset to Leeds, and also as as we transition uh, to eventually taking full control of the club the American connection with myself and with Jesse and some of the American players that we have on Leeds, I really thought that we had a bright future together. Yeah. And I, and I really respect him as a coach and really respect him as a person and just enjoy his company. And, but that we work at, and, and, and let me, let me double down on the data would suggest that our expected goals versus expected goals allowed was actually really good. Sure. Uh, you know, our data put us as a ninth or 10th in the Premier League club, but we weren't getting the results. We weren't getting the points. Right. And so it was a very difficult decision to separate my fondness for him yeah. as well as my, the, the, the fondness I had for, or the belief I had in the long-term future where the long-term future is not going to exist if we can't survive the short term. Hmm. And so having to detach from that as well and make the difficult decision because, you know, we need the most important thing was to survive right now. Otherwise I can't even think about the long term. Yeah. And that was a really difficult decision where you have to separate, like be more agnostic about like, are we getting the results right now? And what is best to get the results right now? Yeah. And so that was a hard, hard decision that it's the one that comes to mind right now because we just had to do it. And I'm, I'm sure you you don't, but certainly fans and, and others who are around that, they sort of feel 
that kind of again nostalgia the yearning for days your or or glory years um yeah. whether it's in leeds or, or the 49ers but again yeah. for for in your role sounds like you again have to sort of like flush out that signal ensure what's yeah. best for the team for for you and and sort of the one-year three-year ten-year plan um for mm-hmm. what's going on I, i'm curious about about one thing i read an article in the athletic where a few agents sort of described you as having an inherent sense of fairness and equity and that you're affable but tough and mm-hmm. um is this an appropriate description do you think for who you are inherently or, or specifically more as a negotiator and and for that matter are they also describing parag outside of the negotiating room parag as a parent parag as a as a person yeah you know honestly to me that's like the best the the i'm most proud of that kind of praise yeah. Uh, because that's exactly how I want, how I aspire to be. Sure. Um, in terms of being tough, but fair. And, you know, I think a misnomer about me that is probably said more than what you just said sure. is that I'm always, when I'm trying to win, um, yeah. and I'm trying to win a deal at, or win any conversation or negotiation or anything. And that's really not what I'm, what I'm aspiring to do. Yeah. You know, I teach, yeah. um, I teach a negotiations class at the, at the business school at Stanford every spring. In fact, my class starts in two weeks and one of my main we try not to mention stanford on this show by the way but sure okay (laughs) sorry uh one of my main themes of class is about never try to win a deal the best deal is where neither party wins and where both parties are uncomfortably comfortable or comfortably uncomfortable and that's the goal always and so in fact so much so that there have been a number of times where i've concluded a deal um, and you know, whether it's been signed off on or, ha- or handshaked on, uh, but upon reflection, I think that I have too many of the chits and I will make, uh, I will, I will rebalance after the fact and make a phone call and offer an olive mm-hmm. branch to rebalance because it doesn't feel, I feel like I maybe had too much of it. Interesting. And because it's really important to me that, you know, in this business, as well as actually in life. You don't. You're not doing one-off transactions or one-off, you know, single-entity uh, transactions. You're all. You're going to be dealing with the person many times over. Whether it's your wife, your spouse, yeah, your, your boss, it's, it's relationship uh, your neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Like you're going to have a hundred more negotiations with that same person probably. And so, why would you want to? It, it is actually uh, counterproductive and not intelligent to try to win one. So, so I actually am very proud to hear that somebody would say that because what would really hurt me and bother me is if someone thinks that I'm trying to win and people do. Yeah. Uh, and that's one that just sticks in my craw because that's really not what I'm trying to do. When you come to the negotiating room or the negotiating table or, or start off and initiate that relationship, as, as you mentioned, and, you know, think a little bit more deeply about that, oftentimes the other person on the other end of the table is perhaps not at that at that mindset, and they're thinking that it's either yeah. win or lose, right? So, you know, for you, do you have to kind of find a way to get to a certain point before you even start to sort of accelerate that process and make it feel so that there is a comfortable uncomfortability, as you said? Yeah, I think the most important thing is um, is compassion and empathy. What I mean by that is f- like trying. I, I spend more time. Uh, trying to understand the other party's uh, emotions, desires, uh, what they need, their own agency. What I mean yeah. is, uh, 
are they like, who are they reporting to who sure. uh, who are their constituents uh, are they do they have the agency to make a deal themselves or do they have to go out and uh, deal you know convince their part people whoever that might be uh, really trying to understand the other side and putting my empathy cap on I spend more time doing that than even thinking about what my own intentions are and that's I think very uh, that's really served me well because it, to, to help understand what is most important to them and why. Yeah. And then from that, I can shape, is there, is there a zone within what I know is important to them where I'm also happy Yeah. and trying to then get to that point. By the way, in that picture behind you, is that Candlestick or is that, uh, is that no, uh, that's Levi's? Uh, opening game of Levi's, Levi's in 2014, our first preseason game, first yeah. event, at the first football game at Levi's. Congrats. Congrats on that for sure. Um, you know, uh, I, I wanted to find out in when you think a little bit about the empathy part and when you think about kind of reflecting and self-reflecting and knowing who you are in sort of a growth mindset and sort of in the theme of this particular podcast, but do you think of yourself as a South Asian American or an Indian American sports executive or NFL executive? Hmm. So not every day. Uh, but I will tell you that anytime I go to NFL meetings and owners meetings and things like that, I am uh, strongly reminded of it because mm. there's no other brown guys there or yeah. very few. Very few. Uh, so, right. so, so I'm, I, yeah, I'm reminded of it. I was, and, you know, the sad reality is uh, in 23 years now that I've been in the NFL, 22 and a half years, you know, I was one of the, what, I don't know, two or three Indian American people that worked on the sports side of the of in the nfl on a football for a football team and here we are 23 years later and i'm probably one of three or four right uh it hasn't changed much and you know and while we are so few i mean asian americans yeah they're nowhere to be found and you know what they don't like football any less than any of us it's just they just haven't gotten their their chance and it's the it's kind of the and, and it's actually even worse in the premier league yeah it's the sad reality of pro sports is that it's a little bit less of a meritocracy as you would like to see it's yeah. a little bit more about uh who you know uh not what you know that at least in terms of getting your foot in the door and that has served as a big gatekeeper to to allowing people of all colors and sizes and shapes to to break into the league well especially with the you know kind of legacy aspect of things particularly in the nfl and Right. When you think, when you're reminded of that, perhaps not on a day-to-day basis, but when you're at meetings and whatnot, does it increase your, in some ways, sense of professional responsibility to this element of your identity in that, hey, you know what, I, I need to pet, pave more ways, whether it's for South Asians or folks who are under, underrepresented or, for that matter, vulnerable in that way. And I mean, because I, I've asked this to other guests on this show before that other than our names... Is there anything that kind of like reminds us on a day-to-day basis of that kind of professional identity? Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't, so I, in terms of responsibility, I think the way I'd answer that question is that I have always viewed it as a way to try to build competitive advantage Yeah. because of the who you know mentality of, the, of, of pro sports. You know, this reminds me of 15 years ago. When I took over the business side of the 49ers, and we were built, we were we had to go and build a stadium, and and I hired I don't even know maybe a you know, eight to a ten of our C level executives at the time, and I did something that for me was very intuitive, but it wasn't commonplace in the NFL, 
in pro sports, people recycle executives, right? So if you are an average executive and ticket sales person in an NBA, then hey, uh, you get promoted to be a VP of ticket sales in the in Major League Baseball. And now the NFL comes calling us for a CRO job, and wow, this person had experience of in two different sports. Perfect, you're our CRO. Nobody's even paying attention to whether they were good or not, right? And so what I said is, all right, let me fish in a different pond. Let me go find the best people possible for sponsorships, ticket sales, PR, communication, finance, all of those things uh, that we needed as we were building our management team for Levi's, or for building a stadium. And let me just do it this way. Let me say, let me go find the best people for the job, regardless of uh, color of skin, which was a big deal back then. Gender, also a big deal back then, that nobody really, you know, is all a male-driven industry. Uh, let me go independent, let me find the best people. And then the second criteria instead of the first criteria was, did they happen to work in sports or not? It'd be nice, but it wasn't a requirement. And so what we did is we built ourselves a very diverse, very qualified team uh, that I just thought it built us a competitive advantage because we had all these people that many of whom didn't come from sports, right? Uh, but gave them their first chance. And so to come full circle to your question, one thing I'm very proud of is many of those people I hired back then are now presidents of sports teams in the NFL and in other sports who otherwise maybe would not have gotten their chance in sports, right? If not for me hiring them back then because they never had their who you know. Yeah, and in some ways, kind of it reminds me of, in some ways, a proxy for your story, right? I mean, your navigation through management consulting and, you know, getting on a project with the Niners was a, a great entry into that and paying it forward. Yeah, was but it was a fortuitous turn of events for me. It was because Bill Walsh decided, let me, let me, let me do something totally out of the box. Let me hire Bain and Company yep. to look at a pro to look at a pro to help me study the 2001 draft in terms of the currency value of draft picks. And the other thing that Coach Walsh was so amazing at is he also he was just looking for a competitive advantage always. It didn't yeah. matter. That's why he was at the forefront of hiring minority coaches and things like that. And so he gave me he gave Bain a chance and he gave me a chance. You know, I I was a little Indian kid who never played football before yeah. competitively. I, you know, I played other sports, but I didn't play football. I didn't look the part. Yeah. Uh, and he gave me a chance. And so for me, I got that break uh, by good fortune. Right? Sure. And so like I always want it's always been in my mindset uh, to try to pay it forward, so to speak, because I know I was given that lucky break. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Parag Marathe. Stay tuned. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, I'm Srikant Datar. I'm Dean of the Harvard Business School. And you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Hey guys, it's Ryan Argwal here, a men's basketball player at Stanford University. And you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Hey there. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and let's rejoin our conversation now with Parag Marathe, from the NFL San Francisco 49ers. You're a key leader now in the 49ers leading a global brand through Leeds and 
you've always you've always been a leader with USA Cricket too. What have these endeavors kind of taught you? You mentioned empathy before, and I'm I'm curious what they've taught you particularly about empathy, especially with two very very different fan bases than the NFL. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really it's interesting putting my cricket hat on for a second in that uh, I I'll, I'll be honest I still only kind of know how to play the sport. Uh, you know, I, I am, I am, um, you know, I was, I've been learning it for the last five years and it's, sure. and, and so like I'm much better today than I was five years ago right. or four years ago, but it doesn't really matter because it doesn't matter if a ball is puffed or stuffed. Uh, it doesn't matter if spherical or oblong or hard or, or soft. It's really, it's the sports, right? It's the same thing. It's about storytelling. It's about winning on the field or the pitch or the court. And it's about building a fan base, right? Yeah. It's about building your brand. And, and so it doesn't matter what the sport is. And, sorry, yeah. and about selling tickets and yeah. sponsorships and building the commercial side of the business. It's the same thing, yeah. right? It doesn't matter if it's cricket, football, or soccer, yeah. right? It's all, it's all the same. And so, but the passion of fans is, all, is, very, is very similar. And, and uh, you know, cricket is being the second largest sport in the world. And there's a lot of people who are very, very passionate about the sport. And here we are in the US with the second largest sport in the world, but the US being the largest media market in the world yeah. is such a nascent opportunity to build something so big. And so, you know, trying to put that together was interesting. Now, what I learned the hard way is that there are a lot of politics in American cricket or global cricket. And yeah. so navigating yeah. that is very, very complicated. And so it was almost hard uh, or is almost hard to to truly un be successful with my empathy cap on because so many people have so many emotions around around cricket and so that was a that has been a difficult one. Well, and and I think particularly right like the rabid fan globally, uh, whether it's Premier League, whether it's uh, cricket in India, whether it's cricket worldwide, you know there there's a very very there is a commonality and yet there's a little bit different from the politic and the business aspect mm -hmm. to it especially in an american mm -hmm. market i, I want to ask you a personal question you opened up several years ago very courageously in fact about the impact of mental health on your own family and the experiences with your late sister mm -hmm. is there an importance and value for that matter for vulnerability as a leader and, and particularly in a sports franchise. Uh, yeah, um, I think specifically to the, the the last point you made about being in a sports franchise. I mean, sports is about the macho business, right? And or yeah. uh, showing your machismo and never le, le, allowing uh, showing weakness, especially you know during a match or a game. It's important, right, to do that. But that's just the that's just the game. It's the event itself. I mean, everybody. All, we all have our vulnerabilities, and particularly when it comes to mental health. I think one of the things that I realized with my sister passing away from, from mental health and anorexia, one of the things I realized was I am in a unique position given so many things about me where if I was someone who was, became out more vocal about supporting mental health, uh, maybe that there'd be more people that listen. And so those, those unique things about me one being in sport and people in sport, especially 10 years, 15 years ago when I started being, or 13 years ago when I started being more vocal about this, 
Yeah. Um, people in sports didn't really talk about mental health. And it's yeah. nice to see there's more and more athletes coming forward talking about their vulnerabilities and weakness. But sport being one, me being a man versus a woman, you know, men don't show weakness. And then third, uh, and probably most impactful is, you know, being Indian American or being from yeah. the immigrant community. Uh, you know, as well as I do, like there is, there's no such thing as mental health in Indian families. It's about, mm-hmm. you you know, get your good grades, uh, do this and nothing else matters. I, I don't care if you have friends. I don't care if you're stressed out. I don't care uh, if you're unhappy, like you just have to succeed. Uh, and sure. there's nothing else that matters. There's like, my parents grew up not believing that, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists were a joke yeah. uh, that, and that there wasn't mental health wasn't a real thing. It was just an excuse. And so if someone, so for me, someone who is a man, an Indian American, a minority being in sports, speaking about mental health and, and vulnerability, maybe there's someone out there that would listen. You know, every time I spoke about it, maybe there's just one person out there that would listen. And that's one more than I had. Right. Uh, growing up, and that was that would be valuable. Well, and and I wonder, in my opinion, I, I think it does contribute to a culture and a culture of winning and a culture mm-hmm. that that people can be themselves and and in fact lay out what they're comfortable with and and also lay out what they're uncomfortable with and and hopefully people right. can get that team culture you know even more impacted. I, I remember this is a slightly different uh, twist on on somewhat of this, but. You know, I remember when the Yankees in the 80s were just kind of muddling around and mediocre and, and they were just going through a lot. But but their brand was so large that sort of progress was always possible. And it sort of brings me back to what you said earlier about, like, you know, the cruelty of the NFL cycle and whatnot. And and in the NFL, of course, 31 teams don't win the Super Bowl every year. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and but it's and that's been elusive even in your own tenure. Um, yeah. Is it a fair measurement to have that expectation and say that they look, it's so binary, it's so black and white, even when there is so much progress going on. Yeah. I mean, that's the cruelty of the sport. Any sport is that there's only one champion at the end and you do everything you can to get to that pinnacle. Um, And when you're aspiring to win a championship, it sort of is the case ultimately that, you know, anything but that, is a failure, you know, and yes, it's nice to have progress or yes, it's nice to be in the mix every year. But at the end of the day, I think the thing that gives great perspective uh, in any of the sport, these sports is there's so much luck involved in any of these sports, especially when you have so few games, like 17 games and sudden death playoffs, right? It's not yeah. like NBA where you have seven game series where maybe the cream rises to the top more frequently. Yeah. Uh, in sudden death games, there's just so much noise or luck or bad luck that can happen. Yeah. So that all you can do is put yourself in a position to get to the dance, put yourself in a position to be able to to be in that arena when the coin is flipped and see which way the coin. And then ultimately, if it's heads or tails, some of it is out of your control. Yeah. Right. But just to get to that point where you have a ch- where you have a chance like that, that's all you're trying to do. Because like, it's easy to go down a path where you just feel terrible because you never won. But yeah. all we're trying to do in any of these sports is try to get to the point of comp- you know, putting yourself in a position to win. And then what happens, happens. It, it reminds me of two things. I mean, one, that first off, it's it's helpful to have sort of a Kleenex box of quarterbacks, if you can, um, over the year. And then second is, for, for you guys, uh, it does it make progress? And, this, and does it make celebrating that progress, you know, difficult? 
if in the end it's still black and white, it's still about the win. Yeah, it probably does. It, it yeah. to be honest with you, it probably does. It's hard yeah. because ultimately it's uh, you want to get you want to reach the mount the top of the mountain. Right. Uh, so in, in thinking about our chat, I actually searched your name on Google. And what was interesting is that the first two videos that pop up are titled How the 49ers Have Outgrown Parag Marate and Why the 49ers <laughs> Need to Fire Parag Marate. Yeah. What has um I love the whole idea of tempering and flushing out the, the all the noise. But but what has longevity in this organization taught you about yourself as a human? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. And uh, by the way, I appreciate you sharing those negative videos with me. <laughs> One thing I've learned, I don't, I don't pay attention to them, so I didn't yeah. know those existed. Right. I, I didn't know they existed <laughs> until this morning, yes. so... Um, but but um, I don't know. I guess a couple things, both positive and negative. The negative thing is like, hmm, uh, have I just been complacent and and just been in one place the whole time and not wanted to uh, take risks and do other things? But on the same time, like, hey, you know what? Also, I'm focused on just doing what I think is right, and that's an it, it's an empirical right, not just what's right yeah. for me. And you know, take pride that you know ultimately. I always, I mean, just the nature of the football part of my job, I always work for, for our head coach and our general manager. That's just like, I'm a support role to them in the football side of my job. And so I take pride in the fact that, hey, every time we've had a new coach and GM, like I'm starting from scratch, right? They can yeah. say, I don't want them around and I wouldn't be around. It's not like I'm just tied to the owner on that. I work for them. And so, you know, I have to uh, start from scratch and earn respect. And yeah. so, you know, and I've done that. This, has that brought you sort of a, a long-term joy? And maybe that joy is what actually does fuel kind of the um, the day-to-day, -day, the cruelty, the um, ability to kind of weather so many things? To be honest with you, I don't think about it that way. So yeah. maybe in upon reflection, 10 years, 20 years from now, I'll think about it that way. But for me, it's just I still love the sport. Yeah. I'm still passionate. I still love the, comp the competition. Yeah. Um, and so every year is a new year. And I, 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 like I said, I really do still have butterflies in my stomach the night before games uh, and the morning of games. And so it's just like, that's what I love about it. Well, at least today we're going to celebrate with you. First off, as a lifelong Rams fan, I'm not rooting for you guys at all. <laughs> but, but on the other hand, I'm grateful for all you're doing with the Niners for our community. And I wish you all the best, not only just in the draft, but in, in all of your endeavors. Prague, thank you so much for joining. And, and I hope we can host you again sometime down the road. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Prague. Remember that you can catch all episodes of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing wherever you're getting your podcasts. It's May, and it's National Mental Health Awareness Month in the U.S. So if you or someone you know needs to speak with a trained crisis counselor, call or text 988. And globally, please visit befrienders.org or checkpoint.org. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dharndikar.